So it's another episode of Why Are We Like This, the true crime podcast, where the entire state of Florida is one big active crime scene. I'm David Quinones, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Tomas Kennedy. Tomas? Hey, y'all. Good to see you. And, of course, my other co-host, the stalwart, the indefatigable, uh, Gerald Doherty. Jerry, how, how, how goes it? Ne- never been defatigated, never will be. <laughs> so, fellas, election nights, they come and go. But rarely does one election night come along that completely encapsulates the rationale for your podcast and exactly why your podcast should exist. Um, Like it it felt like Florida was absolutely an outlier. Maybe you could add it to a couple of other states like Ohio, uh, Nevada still out. We're going to get into all of that. Um, But we also want to talk immigration today. And our guest for today's conversation is Danny Rivero, reporter and producer at Miami's NPR affiliate WLRN and a fixture in state and local news. If you live down here, you know Danny. Um, He's coming off a late night covering the midterms, but he's uh, taking some time to talk us through it. And you can find him on Twitter at Too Much Me. Danny, welcome to Why Are We Like This? Thanks for having me, David. (laughs) So we also want to plug Danny's new podcast. Not that new anymore. It's been out for a couple of months. Detention by Design a six-part series that came out in September and explores the roots of immigration detention centers in the U.S. and how they came to house tens of thousands of detainees every day. Contrary to what a lot of people might think, this phenomenon, it didn't originate in the U.S. or Mexico border, but right here in Florida through a series of crude experiments in small jails uh, many decades ago. You can find Detention by Design on WLRN.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to jump into the... the um, conversation about last night's elections and midterm election and, and uh, takeaways and stuff like that. But Danny, like, can you tell us a little bit about um, detention by design and like what, what its um, origin was like, what, where, where that idea came from? Yeah. I mean, the, the origin kind of goes back. Um, I've been thinking about doing it for a while. Um, and a lot of it actually goes back to the Trump administration. It was like 2019 when I first had the, the first idea. And that was when, you know, all the, Everyone was talking about what the Trump administration was doing on the southern border, um, the amount of people that were finding themselves in detention, you know, families getting separated. Um, and it was during that time where I was doing reporting on it down here in Florida, and I was reading a lot about it and the different media coverage. And there was like one line in a Washington Post piece um, that said, you know, all this immigration detention stuff, like this all started in Florida with the arrival of Haitians. And then like it moved on. I was like, what? Like, (laughs) I didn't know that. Like, like, what do you mean? And it just like, it was like a nugget that was in my head. And you know, time went on um, and I couldn't let go of the idea. And I did like actually a small story about it for us. And then I took it to my editor about like the origins of the immigration detention system. And we had a conversation she was like, this is not one story, like this is, this is a whole series, you know, this is like, there's so much to it with local and national history. Like it really needs to be expanded and given the room to, to get into everything that it needs to get into. And I'm like, I'm super happy with how it came out. I've heard amazing things. A a, a professor at Miami Dade college actually just told me last week that he's, he's already started to incorporate it into the curriculum, um, which is really awesome to hear. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited that it's out in the world. Yeah, it dispels a lot of, um, I don't want to call them myths or anything, but maybe just area, like areas where the average person is a lack of knowledge or ignorant. Because I, I think that if you have some passing awareness with America's, like our perverse obsession with, with immigration or our opposition to it, you might think of like the Braceros program. You might think of like even further back, like the, the Chinese Adjustment Act and things like that. But, you know this sort of punitive posture that we have towards people who want to come to our country. It's kind of new. It's only in the last 50 years that we've been doing this kind of stuff. And um, I want to get into that with you. And we talked a little bit before we we started recording about um, the prominence of this issue on a national scale during the the midterms. But I want to open it up to everybody. Like, guys, what did you think? We're coming out of last night where Florida, I think, pretty much cemented its 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 um, reputation as uh, what the nation thinks of it is, which is like a deeply red state. Uh, Tomas, I don't know. What were your takeaways from last night? I mean, you know, there's just so much thing, so many things to dissect here. 
uh, and so many failures. But, you know, I, I think that Florida Democrats need to take a hard look at themselves and, you know, just be honest about their many failings. There are a lot of like atmospheric reasons as to why Democrats underperform, whether it's the economy. Obviously, there's like voter suppression by the state. You know what I mean? Like th there's external factors, but the reality is also that our party sucks. Like our infrastructure is just not where it was during the Obama era. We've completely uh, have given up on voter registration. Uh, we've completely uh, have given up on voter turnout, on list building. All our like, you know, election targeting is done through algorithms. Our data sucks. Our messaging is awful. We just talk about bullshit all the time instead of like pocketbook issues and the economy, things that matter to people. I mean, you know, we're the party of FDR. We should be talking about union jobs. We should be talking about wages, we should be talking about Medicare, Social Security, you know, uh, home ownership, affordable housing, right? Like things that actually matter to people. And of course, we don't give up on the culture war stuff and we don't become like rabid reactionaries because of it but it just we can't be leading with that stuff and then obviously you know i've been talking about this for a long time uh our party has become an atm machine for grifter consultants and to be fair the republican party of florida is the same thing but the difference is that their consultants win so they can grift and make money out of commission fees but they win like our grifter consultants lose and they get rehired uh, and we see the same names over and over in the same campaigns um, so I just think there's a lot to again to dissect here I, I don't know I, I mean I, what you all, I, I'm especially curious what Danny thinks you know um, yeah yeah Danny I want to I want to get to to your takeaway from last night a few just to frame it a little bit a couple of takeaways obviously Ron DeSantis won by a very healthy margin um, 18 crazy uh, among among of course to 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 me this was of of note won 55 to 45 among puerto ricans in florida yeah 55 to 45 uh just an, an an unbelievable performance and if you told me that this happened couched in the middle of what everybody had taken to calling a potential red wave i'd say wow okay well it makes sense but if you take florida and ohio out of the out of the picture Democrats, like in pretty much every observable metric, won last night, which yeah. is like saying, like you know, if the, if the queen had balls, she'd be king. But still, like it, it, it's 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 notable. I don't know, Danny. What do you think? I mean, yeah. Um, if you look at the national map, Democrats did really well, and then you look at Florida, and I was looking at the the, the governor numbers of of races across the country. The governor race in Oklahoma was closer than the governor race in Florida. Do you know how insane that is? That's insane. I'll, I'll one up you. We lost to Miami Beach. We lost a house race in Miami Beach, a state house race. But back, back to Oklahoma, though, <laughs> because, you know, I spent some time there at my last job doing a documentary. I got to know the state pretty well. Oklahoma is pretty broadly considered like the reddest of the red states. Yeah. Where Democrats are basically, they have no chance. It was a big deal when they won one house seat there. The race in Oklahoma was closer than Florida. I mean, th that alone, I mean, this has been um, an ongoing shift. And then it just all, bam, it all happened at once. And it's, on some level, it's not really surprising. I actually want to say, Tomas, you owe me a drink. I ran into Tomas at a at a at, at the bar the corner a couple months ago. We actually made a little bet that I remembered. I said I think I think Miami Dade is going to go red. And okay. uh, and sure enough, friendly, so Tomas, you owe me a you owe me a drink. But I'm I think it mean, didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, if you have if someone had their eyes open on what was going on here talking to people in, in Westchester and, you know, the city of Miami and some of the far flung suburbs. I mean, it's, it's been turning red. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's just been happening. To your me, point earlier, David, about Puerto Rico, I was going through old articles from 2018 um, about um, uh, hurricane, uh, people from Puerto Rico coming over from Hurricane Maria. 
and that the uh, person most aggressive in outreach efforts in those times was Rick Scott, not any Democratic yep. Party outfit or organization. So your point about like a 10 point margin among Puerto Ricans, when they're only being reached out to from one side, it's almost like we should be surprised that there's surprise. Like, you know, how long can you keep sleepwalking before you ask, well, you know, <laughs> why you're not getting anywhere? But so you got to wake uh, up. I'll, t- I'll tell you guys a story. I'll tell you guys a story. In 2005, um, I was living in Las Vegas and I moved. I, I didn't move. I, I visited my family in Orlando, Puerto Rican. Shocking, right? Living in Orlando. Uh, and my grandmother, who at the time was about like in her like late 70s, had a scrawled piece of paper on her fridge with a phone number on it. And it said, call me on it. And I asked her, I was like, well, what is this from? And she goes, oh, that was a very helpful gentleman that I met um, dealing with your with your, uh, with your your grandfather's medical bills. His name is, um, is um, Bill Nelson. He's our senator. And he gave Ooh. me his phone number. And it was a handwritten note from Bill Nelson. It was his cell phone number. And, I mean, whatever. I don't want to relitigate Bill Nelson's incompetent 2018 cam- campaign. But, like, that's the difference, man. There yeah. used to be that like on the ground level and don't like ever mistake me for somebody who's gonna you know mistake bill nelson for some grassroots activist but fuck my grandmother my 75 year old grandmother had his cell phone number up on her fridge and i wonder how many puerto rican grandmothers have a democrat's phone number up on their fridge in orlando right now uh, not counting anna's constituency other than anna if I, you know? if I can add something here i mean part part of my analysis on why this flip happened right now um especially here in Miami is um, like, I think we haven't, I don't think Democrats have fully grasped how bad they did in 2020 in the first place and how much that played into it. Like during 2020, when it was fashionable, I guess I would say for Democrats to say, no, we're going to stay home. We're going to do all our campaigning virtually. We're, we're going to limit contact, whatnot. Do you know what was happening? Republicans were knocking on every freaking door that they could find. Yeah. They were connecting with voters, following up with voters, not just digitally, but they were doing that too. But they were making face-to-face interactions. I don't think Democrats have grasped how much ground they lost in the 2020 election because of that. And, yeah. and I don't think they've even started to recover. No, I, I was I actually agree 100%. And I think the proof is in the pudding because the campaigns in 2020 that never got out of the field won. Whether it was Luisa Santos for school board in Miami-Dade, where it was Daniela Levin-Cava, who had an incredibly robust field operation, where it was Anna Schemani in Orange County, uh, who you know retained her... Uh, a house seat and actually flipped some Trump precincts. Yep. You know, like field is not the end all be all, but it works. And the Republicans have built a really robust field operation that includes voter registration, uh, 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 voter turnout, persuasion. They have uh, this Hispanic community centers. They have one in Doral where they actually do roundtables and press conferences and they have naturalization clinics. So, yeah, I, I agree completely. And, and actually, I'll one-up you, Danny, and it wasn't just the Democrats. It was the third-party groups, the C4s. I actually was working for uh, an an immigration-based nonprofit that moved everything virtual during the pandemic and remained, you know, virtual through most of it, even after, you know, it was safe, even after campaigns and organizations developed, you know, techniques to, you know, that were deemed safe, right, in terms of health guidelines to, to interact with the public. And I just couldn't do it anymore. I was like, I'm tired of being home. I'm tired of being in Zoom. I'm an organizer. I like interacting with people. I want to be outside. I want to be doing this work. And the, the truth is a lot of organizations shifted to digital. Uh, they got lazy yeah. and they uh, remained there. And they were aided and embedded by donors, uh, you know, and, and just, you know, the, the orientation of a party that got into this like pandemic safety mindset and refused to shift away from it. And I'll, I'll say one more thing is I knew we were in trouble in 2020 when I saw DeSantis go on a press conference and he said, the Zoom class wants to mandate lockdowns against the rest of us have to work every day to earn a living. When he said the Zoom class, I knew that he was tapping into an economic populist messaging right. that is just so 
foreign and alien to the Democrats that like they just can't even begin to grasp it. It's just and, yeah. and, you know to, to that same point. I mean, if if DeSantis had one thing, one relatively uncontroversial, even though I know it's an uncontroversial thing, that really worked in his favor, it was COVID policy. I mean, in 2021, um, when I started hearing from people that are not political, people that I know, like, thank God we live in Florida, because look at look at what's happening in California. Like, can you believe that? And me and my, my head thinking like, holy shit, like people in California are in lockdown. Like that, that matters. That that mattered a lot, you know? And that, that, that wasn't a, a, like a left or right thing, even though it kind of became one. But that was just like, he got on a lot of people's good side on that. Not necessarily on the left and right spectrum. It's just like. This, this was something that I was in the chat bitching earnestly about last night, which was that <clears throat> just it's i'm trying to think of a good metaphor and i can't because it's almost it's like i still think that like taken as components saying like hey we should all work from home if we can and you know and uh embrace whatever these these policies in spring summer fall of 2020 i still think that that was a a, a good idea uh, I, I look i look at the overall economic benefit i know that we love to talk about it a lot but when you look at the raw numbers in florida's unemployment we don't even know what florida's unemployment is because one thing we learned in the, during the pandemic is we don't fucking know how many people are actually unemployed in the state because you the the website that records it is only open during banking hours and only works like 10 percent of the time so we have no idea what what the actual unemployment numbers are but if they are what we think that they are then then they uh i mean was it really worth it's it's like what half of a percentage point better than um than California than New York like okay great so what we let uh, like some outsized amount of our population higher than new, especially post availability of the uh, vaccine die for that what half of a percentage point in unemployment rate to be able to this goes both ways right like we saw somebody who ran for nation uh, um statewide office who was running as um who, who who put on a grim reaper costume and walked around on the <laughs> the fucking beach for a month and got a lot of profile from doing that and he was fucking wrong those people who were out there on the beach were safe they were fine and he ran as a democrat and actually got a few votes i i don't know man i look back in hindsight and i'm like we just like abandoned the stuff that that like like democrats abandoned the shit that they were actually right about and seeded ground and said like, oh, you're right. We should have just let everyone fucking die. And I don't know, man. I, it, this is this is the stickiest one because the thing that you said, Danny, that's most correct is that it worked. It worked. It did turn into a political issue. And if you want to gauge the true north of that based on like, did it get the votes? Fuck yeah, it got the votes, man. Everybody who didn't want to deal with lockdowns came here. Some of them moved here. And I mean... I think DeSantis, to his credit, I mean, he made a he made a big gamble in yeah. COVID. I mean, especially when you think of like um, how the education system would work. You know, um, he brought people back into the classroom when everyone, you know, on the other side of the aisle was like flipping out, and the unions were going crazy, and um, you know, and there was there was an uncertainty either way. Like there was, there was no certainty if this was a good thing or if this was a bad thing, but the governor made a decision and actually that panned out. He, he made the right gamble. You know what I mean? And there was a general unwillingness once, you know, the, the facts started to emerge of where this actually turned, like where, where, where everything landed to acknowledge that the governor was right, you know? And then that entrenchment, I think turned a lot of people off too. It was like, hold on, you didn't want the kids back in class. Okay, the school rooms are not that big of an issue for, for COVID. Um, now we're seeing data coming out that the kids that were kept from the classroom, their test scores and, and learning are in general yeah. are super lagging. Yeah. Florida's not really a part of that. Like the governor was right on that. Point blank, yeah. he was right on that. And that was yeah. a big issue for a lot of parents. Yeah, look, yeah, parents. I, yeah, sorry, go ahead, T. No, I would say I, I actually agree with a lot of that, Danny. I mean, 
it's complicated, right? Because I think the governor was actually wrong on a lot of things. Uh, yeah. And he was right on some of them. I mean, we can't also ignore the fact that 84,000 people died in this state. I mean, it's a lot of people. And I just think Democrats just sounded fucking hysterical, uh, unneededly so, when we could have focused on the fundamentals, which is like government's being irresponsible, like you should wear a mask. Why isn't he just, even if he's not doing a mask mandate, would it really hurt for him to just encourage it a little bit? And even if we don't yeah. do a vaccine mandate, would it really hurt for him to just say, hey, vaccines work more vigorously and encourage people to get vaccinated to protect lives and just say, hey, we are not going to mandate anything and we're not going to lock you down in your home. We respect that and we believe that. But there was just such a chorus of like, you know, hyperpartisan, like left voices that made it difficult for like our elected officials and like people in the Democratic Party to go against that. Right. And I do think there was like, a like just reflexive position to just go against anything DeSantis said. And the school thing, it's true. Like I've been saying it for a long time. You guys can attest to this. Closing down the schools, it was bad. Like I got my, I finished my master's program during a, a late 2020 and early 2021. And me as a 30 year old man, was having a very difficult time paying attention in my University of Miami Zoom classes. Yeah. I can't imagine how hard it would be for a freaking eight-year-old or a nine-year-old. I can tell you. I can tell you exactly what it was like for for a at the now she's an eight-year-old, but at the time she was six and seven. What it was like for her to she was go she was going stir crazy. My daughter was going fucking bonkers. Of course, and you know, of, we just can't have kids not going to school. Like yeah. that's just a reality. But at the same time, you know, again, it's uh, it's just this propensity for Democrats to just reflexively, you know, do everything against DeSantis and not just take the common sense approach. And the reality is that I think most Democrats did have like like our, our position at the end of the day was the common sense position, which was we don't want to lock you down in your home, but we would like people to take some common sense precautionary like health you know like guidelines to you know again wearing a mask i think is good like yeah, I, 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 people, I think danny i think danny was onto something will not um help stop the spread of the virus i think danny's onto something because his framing if you listen to what he said he's he's framing it as desantis was right desantis wins and it's all in the framework of political messaging, is he right? right? In the framework of of winning an election in a what used to be a 50-50 state by what? what what's the latest thing? What did he win by? 78 points or something against Chris? I don't know. Like, you fucking crushed him. That's like, yeah, man. You can play the result now. You can with the 80,000 dead people. But, like, still, he, he did the right thing to become governor, a second-term governor after only narrowly by like by like the hair of his chin winning in 2018 and probably become president in a couple of years after donald trump chokes on a fucking kfc mm. chicken wing or well, something and i would i mean i would say uh, you know the the thing we don't know is how much this landslide in florida will translate to the rest of the country because when you see like you know pennsylvania well, and stuff like that's going to be an uphill battle i mean obviously like Governor DeSantis has Florida locked, but the rest of the country is not Florida. No. Like the, the political messaging here is right. so hyper local, especially when it comes to the Latino community, because it's the community with the history that's receptive to that messaging. That's not going to play in in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. Mich Michigan went very blue this cycle. Like they yeah, had a they lot of pickups, you know? And it wasn't for lack of effort of making Gretchen Whitmer a COVID boogie person herself. They yeah. like, she still did like the Democratic Party there is now debating if we pick up the chambers at the state level, we're gonna repeal right to work. Like there are real benefits to like putting a message of we care about your lives and your livelihoods. Like that's the winning message. Like I understand where a lot of the anxiety about school closures and all the rest comes from because in hindsight we don't we know that kids were much less at risk 
But at the time, the question was, how are we going to save as many lives as possible? And it's only in hindsight that now we realize, okay, kids were not nearly as at risk as elderly, you know, older people, people with respiratory issues, what have you. Yeah. But the political message, to David's point, the political message of just live a life, come, come move here and live a life of convenience. That sells. That's easy to sell. I can sell that. Live, live <laughs> every morally, day, live every day not, like it's, it's 2019. Yeah. yeah. That's an yeah. easy message to sell to people. You just know what? I love that want. message. I actually love the idea of like living every day like it's 2019 again. I, you, t- you tell me there's a button I can push easy. to make it be 2019? Fuck yeah, man. I, easy. I'll, I'll and listen, 90, 98% survival rate. Odds are that 2% who die, that'll be someone else. Yeah. Someone you probably don't know. Somebody you don't know. <laughs> but Danny, actually, I actually have a question for you because you, I think you're the only one in this conversation that actually grew up you you grew up in miami right you're like a miami yeah, native yeah. so to the to the to the core of the question uh that makes up this podcast why are we like this why is that message playing in florida but not in pennsylvania and michigan everywhere else in the country well there's a couple different takeaways right i mean one thing is like the historical perspective, like Florida has for a long time, it's been, it's a Southern state, obviously, but it hasn't really been Southern in the sense that most people that live here move here from somewhere else. Right. Like Florida is a Southern state because it chooses to be a Southern state. Like, you know, even, even back in like the early 1900s, like the majority of people that lived here came from the North. But once they moved down here, they adopted kind of Jim Crow views and whatnot, right? Um, so that's that's one thing. It's like, who is moving into the state and what are they taking with them? And over the last couple of years, especially, it's been almost like a partisan decision to move to Florida where it wasn't before. Yeah, so you're yes. changing the, you're yeah. changing the makeup exactly. of the it's a virtue signal. It's a virtue signal. It's like, look People. at me, look at what I'm doing. Look at how much I believe in. Yeah. I'm leaving my, my, my little house in Staten Island. Cause it's always fucking Staten Island. And I'm moving down to Miami and getting a house probably about the same size. Right. People talk up here, talk about moving to Florida with the same gusto of like, I'm adopting a new sports team. Like it's not only I'm moving from a to B I'm adopting a whole different lifestyle. Florida this is my, is my personality now. now. Yeah, basically. Yeah. 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 Right. So, so, so that's one thing. It's like, who's moving into Florida? And let's be real, like Florida is a growth state and we grow from other parts of the country. So if you're attracting people that are super conservative, of course, you're going to be conservative, you know, mm-hmm. and there's not enough native homegrown population to counterbalance that because the people that are born here and tend to live here, if you look at the stats, at least last time I did, they tend to vote Democrat. But the out of state growth is faster than the native growth because that's our whole economy is based on growth. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing with the, you know, the Latino community is just a different profile. It's a different perspective than what the national trends are. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I hate the national conversations about talking about Latino voters and like, what are they going to do? It's like, it's just bullshit. Like, yeah. like it doesn't account for the geography of where people come from and where they live. You know, I remember like when Sonia Sotomayor was elevated to the Supreme Court reading coverage of like, oh, La- Latinos are going to be like so into this in Texas. I'm like, are you people dumb? No, She's a freaking Puerto Rican from the Bronx, bro. Like you think people in like the Rio Grande Valley like connect with her in some way? Like. Danny, do you remember, do you remember when we were, when we were working together, it was like right around the time, I think it was like right after the 2012 election, right after Obama won Florida for the second time in a row. And mm-hmm. Tomas, uh, you remember this moment too, Jared, I, I want to hear all of you guys' perspective on sure. this. There was this conversation that became codified knowledge and just like, this is the way it is. Um, you know, Latinos. Again, that big, broad tent of Latinos, which means 30 different types of people. But, you know, Latinos. Here. Yeah, yeah, here it does. And uh, and, and and black people, which actually in Florida, black saying black people means also a lot of different things. And, um, oh, well, you know what? They are um, just demographics is destiny. Florida, check it off. It's going to be blue for the rest of forever. And I guess it just extended to like, 
we don't have to spend any money or build any infrastructure there anymore because they voted for Obama twice. And that means that they're going to vote for us for fucking ever. I mean, like, I, I don't know. They're just kind of throwing that out there because that seems like the key moment, the misstep where all of the GOP investments started building up and, and, and Florida started becoming this target as like a firewall. Because if there was a world where that happened, there is zero mathematical chance for anybody, any any president, for example, to win a national election, uh, any conservative president to win. A, there's no path to a presidency without winning Florida for a conservative. There just isn't one by the numbers. I don't know. T, what do you remember about that time? It, it must have been like celebratory and like, I guess we're going to be in charge forever. I mean, you know, I, I, I've, I've only been involved in like electoral politics since 2016 uh, with the Bernie movement, really. Uh, before that, I was an, an immigration rights activist because I was undocumented myself, um, you know, and that's how I got involved in politics. But I really, the only person that I ever campaigned for before 2016 was Jose Javier Rodriguez when he ran in 2014. And that's because he was involved in immigrant rights world and he was involved in legal services. And I just really believed in him. But aside from that, like, I don't know, like during the Obama years, like I was outside of like like leadership blue and like democratic party offices without the porter in chief sign to be honest yeah. <laughs> like because he was deporting a lot of fucking people and he, you know and we were pressuring him to get daca so uh, i don't know like i i i'm not like a rah 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 like democrat you know what yeah. i mean i'm just like a realist that like sees like republicans are to me are vile and they they've had people like tom tancredo for example who's a congressman that used to say that Democrat, you know like Undocumented immigrants are bringing leprosy across the border. And I remember watching that while I was undocumented, you know, on CNN, like after I got from school and being like, these people fucking suck. Like they're awful. And they talk shit about me and my parents. And the Democrats seem like a little bit friendlier. So I guess I'll, I'll support them. Um, but I, I don't know. You know, I, I think the like I, I agree actually a lot with Danny. I think, you know, like the the the, the way that we talk about like latino outreach and like latinos not being a monolith and like we need to uh do micro targeting and all that stuff like yeah like we should do that and we should be culturally sensitive and we should understand communities and be educated and try to connect with them but also like latinos are like any other people like we want like safe communities and we want like clean communities and we want like our kids to go to good like schools and we want them to be able to get like you know, a college education and like, you know, succeed and get good jobs. And we want to feel, you know, like economic safety and, and, you know, that there's like a semblance of stability to our lives and that like, you know, the so-called American dream can be achieved. Like, it's not that complicated. Like, yes, we should have culturally sensitive messaging and we should understand who we are talking to because duh, but also it's, we're all human beings. Like we all want the same things at the end of the day like the fundamentals are the fundamentals i don't know that's how i feel about it yeah the um the demographics thing is it's gonna see it's gonna be interesting to see how it plays out long term because you know we want we don't know now if this is a blip or if this is here to stay but um i do remember reading the the census numbers when they came out and the the census is projecting that by the by 2030 florida is going to be a majority minority state yeah um which is pretty freaking remarkable actually yeah um and especially remarkable if the if republicans hold on to their their grip on power here like that goes against all you know back to david what you said like the conventional wisdom of the obama era like that would flip it on its head and obviously the republicans are doing right something right to you know if that's the case yeah, I will say something there. Um, like Florida, kind of like Ohio in a lot of ways, actually, it's a very finicky state electorally. Uh, like it's it's swung a lot. I mean, obviously, it's historically it's been a Dixiecrat state. It's been a, a Democrat state, but not I don't think the type of Democrat that anybody in this call would like to see. There were, there were some uh, pretty progressive very progressive governors in the 70s 
Ruben Askew, for example, who I think is the greatest governor that Florida has ever had, uh, who's an economic populist and anti-corruption and government transparency a governor. So, yeah, you guys, I agree. You guys remember like, Dante Fassell? Dante Fassell was also a pretty good Democratic. He wasn't a governor. He was, I think, a, a rep, right? But still, like, another one. It's true, yeah. So, so there, there's definitely been really good, like, Democratic governors. But my point is, it's historically been Democrat. Then it started shifting Republican in, like, the late 90s. What, there was, like, a Republican wave in the early 2000s. Then, you know, Bill Nelson managed to hold on until 2018 as a as our U.S. Democratic U.S. Senator. In 08 and 12, you know, a guy named Barack Obama, you know, wins against all odds and against conventional wisdom, Florida twice. And, uh, and even in 2018, you know, I mean, Democrats lost, like, the governorship and the Senate, but we did win the Commission of Agriculture. We did flip five House seats. We flipped the state Senate seat. We flipped two congressionals. It wasn't all a wash. What I'm trying to get at is that Florida is finicky. It swings very drastically, and it's the Latino vote, oh. and particularly the Cuban vote, actually, that has really swung very, very widely throughout the decades. If, if, if I can just add something to that, um, the, the Republican Party is actually in a pretty interesting position now because they won they have super majorities now the, in the dog house that caught the, the car the dog that caught the car yeah they have they have super majorities in the house yeah. and the senate they won all the cabinet races i mean florida has real problems on its hands and then for the first time that i can remember in my lifetime like one party and one party alone has all the power like democrats effectively have no power whatsoever right at some point, the party is going to have to address the problems that Floridians have. And people are going to be seeing it. I mean, the, the home insurance rates, holy shit, that's an issue. That's like a really big issue. And it's only getting worse, right? Update, I mean, update for listeners from episode one. I actually found homeowner's insurance, so I'm insured now. But it was, <laughs> oh, but thank you. Thank you, everybody. But it was, a, it was like, it was some real, like, uh, like, like some, some, like, J.R.R. Tolkien mission level shit to, to, to like Frodo crossing Middle Earth type shit to get that in, to get my home insured. And and to, to your point, Danny, like we are like, I know this sounds like apocalyptic and like hyperbolic, but I really do think that there's a world where like Florida gets hit increasingly by hurricanes. You know, the, the frivolous lawsuits continue the, the 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 property insurers decided to leave because it's just completely financially unfeasible. What well, we have five left, five of them leave because the more that leaves, the, the more that the market is unfeasible for them. So it's a self-fulfilling property uh, prophecy. We're left with citizens, the state-run, you know, insurer market. At, at at what point does the mortgage like 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 banks decide to stop giving mortgages to like? Florida homeowners because they can't get property insurance for their homes. I mean, that I is like a real possibility that it becomes I just. Like, I think it's a really good question, but I have, um, you know, I've been developing kind of a theory in my in my head. That's like, I'll I'll just spell it out now. But Florida is almost it's a weird state because like Florida as an economy and as a, a state, it's too big to fail. Like. Yeah. The federal government will never, ever let the real estate market here tank. No. Hey, if, that's it, so if, if it even started to go that direction, the federal government, no matter who's in office, if it's Democrats in the White House or Republicans, they are going to step in and bail it out. It's like there is so much capital here, so much value. The, 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 the Great Depression started actually from the hurricane in 1926 which tanked the real estate market yeah. it started the process of the banks failing that's that's historical you know what i mean and then in in 2008 2007 where was the hardest hit place here the federal government had to step in and prop the whole thing up right can you imagine um, a, can you imagine a world where like that happens and george perez related group mickey arison aren't immediately on the phone and getting some kind of bailout of course they'll get anything like, they want yeah i mean if, if because if the if which which in some way back to i mean to what i was saying like the republicans now that they have all the control they're gonna have to do something on the flip side of it 
maybe they don't have to do anything at all because right. the federal government will bail them out. They haven't done anything up to this point and they've been rewarded for it pretty handsomely. And like from what I can read in the tea leaves, they like the national Republicans think the lesson to take away from this is to go all in on critical race theory and, and trans issues and what have you. They're not talking about homeowner or insurance or wages or anything like that. Uh, yeah. Why would they? I, I don't know. And I think I said this before, but I don't know how like how winning the message is nationally. I know that we're sitting here talking now like 40 minutes about about Democrats getting their dicks kicked in in Florida. But like, I don't know how winning a national message is, is to like make America Florida or make America Ohio. It's not. I, I think that I think the, the canary in that coal mine is low Lauren Boebert um, yeah. was supposed to win her race and, and, and lost. you know, Jared, I would yeah. even do another one. I would even say the reelection of I think her name is I forget her first name but uh, Kelly the governor of Kansas because you look at Kansas Kansas is a great example uh Wisconsin is this too what Danny was talking about before what happens when supermajorities and and triple threat or what do you triple threat uh, uh you know like all, like when 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 the when the Republican party yeah when they when they run all aspects of government what do you get you get Scott Walker's Wisconsin you get um what was his name Kobach's uh, Kansas, you get fucking dystopias. But what did I say? Kobach? Brownback. Kobach, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you get dystopias that force those people, well, not force, but like really encourage voters to say, damn, we tried this and this didn't work. Now, what makes what's kind of unique about Florida is like maybe it's just the cover from all of the, the social justice stuff and all of the COVID stuff. And but yeah, to a large extent, the Republican Party has eluded despite 20 years of control in this state they've eluded any real responsibility for what a mess the state is in a lot of ways and like try to fucking get anything try to get anything done on a county or a state level in this state and like good fucking luck man like it's it's impossible nothing works in the state unless you incorporate the private sector into it which is that's the game the game is to get everything that's supposed to be government uh, government governmental responsibility into the hands of the private sector and to intentionally make it look shitty. Like it doesn't work correctly um, because privatization is the key word, but like, yeah, I don't know, man, I have a working theory too, Danny. And that is like working like 10 years of Republican leadership usually leads States into the arms of something else, whether it's the Democrat party or just hopelessness or just not giving a shit anymore, which honestly yeah, that might like be what year, we, had, what we head towards. Yeah. We're on like year 24. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> any day now, keep checking back any, any election. Now. I, think, I think what was supposed to happen last night, David, is that, uh, that illusion you have might be put to rest. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's, it's dead now. Um, <laughs> so look, I want to talk, uh, about something else. I want to talk uh, still about that. Um, you know, about, about, the context of this midterm election, what it means, but more specifically for an issue that I felt like didn't get the play that it deserved or required. Um, and that is the one that, uh, that we talked about at the beginning of the show, which is immigration. I felt like, I don't know, Jared, Tom, uh, Tomas, I'd be eager to hear what you guys have to say. I felt like that issue in 2022 was dominated and owned by the right. And everything was framed in yeah. terms of, in terms of Trump's announcing, um, you know, that he was that he was running for president. These are criminals. They're driving up the crime rates. Uh, you know, some of them are good people, but we need to you know, build a wall. I mean, like that. I didn't hear very much build a wall rhetoric, but it was very build a wall adjacent. And um, and it felt like any like immigration reform discourse was completely shunted. And it, it felt like that wasn't even. That wasn't a problem anymore. That wasn't a thing anymore. But Danny, you're closer to this. Like, what what was your impression of of what role immigration played in 2022 in the election, in the um, in the midterms? No, I mean, I, I I think I probably agree with you. I think it was a big issue, but almost entirely on on the right. Yeah. Um, you know, when when you when when I when I talk to to voters or political consultants and people in Republican campaigns. I mean, immigration is a big thing. I mean, we are seeing a big wave of immigration, especially at the, at the US-Mexico border. It's very big. And um, that has been used very, at least in Florida, successfully as 
as a wedge issue. It was like, we don't want this. We, we want something else. Um, and Democrats, David, I think to your point, really didn't talk about immigration that much yeah. at all. I mean, last night I was at the, the watch party for Maria Elvira Salazar, who just won re-election in a landslide. Crushed. And what was supposed to be a very tight race, she won by like 15 points. But I, I was talking to her and um, and she was she said in like her victory speech that she filed the bill. Um, she's, she said she hopes to, to, to ram it through, but basically it is, it is gonna address immigration. I mean, on, on and the, how she's talking about it is that's like securing the border, but it's also getting legal status for millions of people who are here that are undocumented. Wouldn't necessarily be mean citizenship you know, there would be like a long process, but they are talking about it ever since like early 2021, when Bob Menendez in, in Jersey talked a little bit about it. Like I haven't really heard Democrats talk about immigration or immigration reform. They've been absolutely entirely on the defense, um, using the same frames of reference and language a lot of times as the right. And they kind of a, abandoned it like i don't i don't see any movement on that at all well, yeah where okay. i, I want to chime in here because uh, i actually uh, again agree with a lot of with, with a lot of what danny said so i i work uh one of my clients is the immigration hub which is a national based like like immigration nonprofit organization and while i i didn't work on electoral issues uh this cycle and i i don't want to work on electoral issues anymore we did do a lot of like communications work around tracking spending and narratives that are anti-immigrant during the election. Uh, and, you know, we found that, uh, and this is in the New York Times, uh, Republicans have spent uh, nearly $40 million on 380 television ads focused on the, the, the so, you know, the border crisis, and employing language around Im immigrants, you know, being invaders and, you know, immigration being an, an invasion, just really awful inflammatory language. And actually there's a Steven, Steven Miller group, the infamous uh, anti-immigrant Trump advisor called Citizens for Sanity <laughs> that spent $51 million in TV ads across uh, 16 states employing a lot of these like nativist, you know, white supremacist language. And I think it's true, you know, what we tried to do during the election is we didn't really do electoral work, but we did try to engage campaigns and candidates and stakeholders around messaging that was that, that was able to counter a lot of these like anti-immigrant, you know, nativist rhetoric that was, you know, common sense and could reach like voters. Right. But did push back on some of the most hateful stuff. And the reality is that, you know, yeah, a lot of these Democratic campaigns and consultants and candidates just don't want to touch immigration. They don't want to address it. They rather ignore it. And the first, well, not the first, but one of the main rules of communications is that if you don't talk about something, you're giving the space for the opposition to define you. Mm -hmm. And by completely ceding ground on immigration, you're allowing the narrative to be dominated by the Republicans, right? And and also like a lot of Democrats, unfortunately, do mirror a lot of the talk talking points that are coming from the right. So they end up, you know, boosting yeah. their 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 messaging. Yeah. It's really I, frustrating. I have um I don't know, something I just thought of, but the you know, we're seeing in historical perspective, like a historic wave of immigrants coming from Cuba right now, right? Um people in my family, people close to my family have crossed the border just in recent months. Um, there's a lot of Cubans coming in. And if you look at the latest FIU poll, how the more recent Cuban arrivals, and by that I mean people that came in the last couple of years, feel about the two parties, the more recent arrivals favor Democrats. Like they favor Democrats. I am not aware of any work that's being done by Democrats or Democratic adjacent um, groups to try to talk and engage with any of those new arrivals. Nothing, nothing. 
and 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 it, and if and because let's be clear, like if nobody talks with them and engages with them, they're probably over time gonna become part of the what's become the mainstream Cuban American, which is just right. staunchly anti-democratic. And and I don't like I'm not a consultant. I don't work on political campaigns, but I'm looking at it, I'm like, there's some Cuban American groups that that do a lot of work in this realm but they they're primarily in in english like there's not a lot of of, of early outreach to, to new arrivals danny maybe you can like explain a little bit to people who aren't in miami and maybe aren't even in florida like the pipeline for when you are cuban and when you arrive in miami i know it's changed a lot the contours of it have changed a lot particularly in the last five years but like there's a specific like um you know, not Miami Freedom Center anymore, but there's booking, there's processing, there's people that you meet, there's lawyers that you're that you're introduced to, that your family. There's the visit to Nyoke Barato where you get your clothing. There's a whole like five, like five or six things you do, and it's into the loving embrace of like Miami conservative Cubans, usually your family members, right? A lot of times, and um, it's like. I hate to call it a pipeline because this is just community. These are just people that are like getting by. It's not like some pipeline to radicalization, but to your point, right? Like, can you talk about that a little bit about the experience of somebody who gets to Miami? Cause I know you've reported on that kind of stuff before. Like it, it's, it, they are in a place where politically they're not going to hear much from Democrats probably or, or, or organized Democrats in any kind of way. Right. No, I mean, especially like the more, recent arrivals and it's you know it's, it's a problem everyone's facing with like the high rents and whatnot so it's it's really hard for really recent arrivals so a lot of people are doubling up tripling up and in, in houses staying with family and whatnot but david to your point a lot of the those more recent arrivals by default are going into households that are very republican and then some of them are like internally because i've talked to some people that are close to my family, right? That just crossed the border. And on the one hand, they're like, thank God that Joe Biden let me cross the border. Thank God that that they're, they're, they're getting my foot in the door. You know, I can start here, start a new family. And then in the household that they're now becoming a part of, they're hearing that Joe Biden is, is the devil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it's, it's like kind of, it's it's laughable, but it's not. I mean, like it's it's a it's a super complex um, topic. Yeah, you know there's I mean? some like and, there's um, some paternalism that plays into it, where it's like if you're the family member who's been here for 20, 30, 40 years, or maybe your whole life, like you have a little more credibility to talk about these things. And it's, I mean, I think about it in terms of being Puerto Rican. It's the same thing. I go back to the island. I talk to family there. And they kind of look at me like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Puerto Rican politics is different than anything you understand. So shut the fuck up. And like, I imagine that there's probably some, you know, something like that here too. Like you, you look, you, you, you literally still have seaweed on your leg. Like, you know, you don't know anything yet. Don't, don't, don't try to trust us. Joe Biden's not good, which I mean, like he's fucking not. But. Yeah, look, I, I, I can share a story that illustrates this. And Danny, the, the poll that you are referencing, one of the caveats, you know, is that actually it states that when Cubans go into the community, because of like relational context within the community, they are funneled into, you know, a, a supporting like right wing, you know, causes, politicians, Republican Party because of the media ecosystem, because of their family members, because of, you know, the context of their community. So that was a, a big caveat of the poll, right? That like relationally speaking, very likely that these folks end up becoming Republican, although, you know, that's not, it doesn't have to be that way. But then I'm sure you followed the story of the 48 Cubans that were almost recently deported, right? Uh, I haven't followed it super closely. But you, okay. So what happened was that because of a, you know, like deal between the State Department and Cuba about, you know, related to accepting Cuban uh, uh, deportations into the island, uh, you know, and, and other like, you know, diplomatic nuances, they're basically could start deporting Cubans again into the island, right? So recently, DHS went around and picked up a group of Cubans at their places of work and their homes and put them in, in, in immigration detention at the Broward Transitional Center, which is a for-profit geo-operated facility in Pompano Beach. Now, 
these Cubans, we were very familiar with us that work in the immigration world because we actually helped along with others secure their release, a, a myriad of nonprofit organizations, helped secure their relief during uh, the last couple of years because we had a, a, a big campaign around immigration detention during the COVID era because of you know conditions that were horrific always, but exacerbated during the pandemic. We secured their release. They were released, you know, they have their check-ins and obviously they're going through the adjustment process, blah, blah, blah. DHS jumps the gun the last couple of weeks, runs them up, like I told you guys, puts them in detention, and there's literally a plane ready on a tarmac to deport them to Cuba. So we find out about this, we instantly mobilize, we call the White House, we call DHS, call State Department, the White House acts, they stop the deportation, we stop the deportation of these individuals. They are released. Uh, I think most of them have been released now. And guess who actually takes the credit for it? Maria Elvira Salazar, who literally didn't. And I, I, I'm not lying to you guys. Like the election's over. Like she won. She's like cemented there. I don't, there's no reason for me to lie about this. I could have talked about this before the election, but you know, I didn't want to get into a back and forth with her office, whatever. But she lies. She takes credit. She uses it to basically rally these people against the Biden administration, and they have every right to be pissed off because they shouldn't have been picked up in the first place. And she does press conferences with them and, you know, like basically utilizes them as political pawns. Yeah. And, you know, these people now are, you know, basically angry at the Biden administration. But the reality is that they should be angry at the Biden administration. But where was Maria Elvira Zalazar? when this was happening during the Trump admin. You know what I mean? Was she saying anything about the Venezuelans that are being that were being deported then or the Cubans? Or is she saying anything about the, you know, Martha's Vineyard flights or anything like that? So at the end of the day, my point is that immigrants, we're we they're always used as a political football. You know what I mean? By people that quite frankly don't really give a shit about them uh, because they're not voters and because they don't have any capital to spend on political campaigns and they don't have any real power. Yeah, and the, the other part of that, I think, for the Cuban-American community here is, like, we are remarkably <laughs> capable of holding, like, two totally opposing viewpoints in the head at the same time. Yeah. Um, on, the, on the one side is um, there is a crisis at the border. We need to end it. We need to secure the border. Thank God our people are coming across. Now they're here. Now we need to keep them here. And it, it's strictly, you know, I was talking to someone at Maria Vida's party last night about this um, and, and specifically about the Cubans that are coming across. And she told me, yeah, but, you know, the, the, they're, they're Cubans. They probably have family here. That's fine. The, yeah. pro the problem is people that are not like that. The they're, problem is people that don't have families. They're the problem. I'm like, uh, no matter what, there's a caveat that always personally benefits the, the perspective in some way. And I'm like, what about the Haitians? The Haitians have a lot of them have family here. They're established yeah. here. Like, but yeah, like it's just disgusting, honestly. They're, yeah. they're up here. There are two types. People talk about immigrants in two types of voices. There are the immigrants who are fleeing uh, a communist state, and those are the good ones. And then there are the immigrants fleeing their position in the capitalist global supply chain. And those are the suspicious ones right. because if they're fleeing hard conditions under capitalism, we can't pitch them on anti-capitalism, so they have to go. <laughs> yeah. If they're fleeing, the people who hate, if they're fleeing, like the conditions yeah. that have been created by like the the churn and burn of the of the West from the Correct. global South, then that's Correct. that's bad. Keep staying in your place. But yeah. but, but I'm different. Yeah, I think I think you'll have a point on that, but I would argue it's even more complicated because even within like these communities, like like let's say Cubans and Venezuelans like they will demonize their own immigrants a lot. Like Danny, like you, you know what happened during El Mariel and like the Valceros. They were like, oh, these are like low class, poor uh, Cubanos that were supporting Castro, you know, this time and they, they don't do anything. In Cuba. You know what I mean? Like they dismiss their own people. Even now with the Martha's Vineyard flights, there's a lot of Venezuelans that are established in this community that are saying actively promoting conspiracy theories 
that, oh, these are just a, 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 a Chavista or Maduro agents, and these are just people that are coming from jails because Maduro's emptying the jails and bringing them all here, and they're low class, they're ex, they're ex Chavistas. So there's a lot of actually like infighting for sure, and with within these diasporas, and yeah. and the, the people that have already established a lot of the times feel distrust of the new people that are coming okay. in. But I'm saying you know? that that happens within the diaspora. I'm saying for people who are not in the diaspora, for people who are just here. Yeah, broadly, generically observing um, the immigration trends. Yeah. yeah, People who were born in Brooklyn seeing people come in say, well, there's a good kind of person who comes here and there's a bad kind. Yeah. And it mostly falls on, are they leaving a left-wing government or a communist state? And if so, they can stay because <laughs> I could talk to them. Yeah. And even, and even policy-wise, right? I mean, like Cubans have been really favored in terms of like immigration policy, one of the most yeah. generous immigration policies in the history of the world, maybe. And it's because geopolitically, you know, Cuba is an adversary of the United States and there's a huge electorate in Miami-Dade that swings a very electorally important state for both parties. Yeah. Which is is the topic of my podcast yes and what brings us back to the beginning uh, i i want to i want to plug the podcast one more time before we go danny you've been very kind and uh and generous with your yeah, time thank, thank um you. i want to i want to like ask one final question and again just so everybody knows you can follow danny um on twitter at too much me that's t-o-o as in there is too much Danny detention by design is a podcast you, that uh, his six part um, him and the team over at WLRN put together. You can find it on WLRN.org. You can also find it pretty much anywhere that you get podcasts. Um, but Danny, there's a guy, there's a new guy, right? This is like, okay, new, new, new dude just dropped and it's not a new guy, but it's a guy that I think that you're per like, you're perfectly positioned to talk about. Okay. People try to blame like the recent arrivals from California. They try to blame the villages. They try to blame white folks moving from Staten Island into like planned communities. But I don't think that that's the, that that's the God, if you want to call it a culprit, if you want to call it a hero, the guy I'm talking about is the guy who 12 years ago didn't give a shit about politics. The guy who lives in Westchester, the guy who today has maybe not become a proud boy, but he's proud boy adjacent. He's got, uh, honestly, Danny, he's got like the same facial hair as you. He's got like kind of the same, like a little bit longer, a little bit longer. Yeah. A little, little longer down there. But like, this is the guy, the real Miami guy. Cause all these other people are bullshit. They're, you know, whatever they're, um, they're, they're, they're late arrivals or recent arrivals They're These guys are born, raised here, maybe one generation away from immigrant, immigrant parents or immigrant grandparents and have fully embraced the message of the right. Have you observed this? Fred Perry Polo new Miami guy. And what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I've I live on Bird Road right by the Palmetto. I see these guys. I go hang out at the same bars as these, as these guys. But like I, this I is do, a new thing. I do yeah. No, no, I, I I do have thoughts and comments on it. And um it's an interesting thing because it has clear political ramifications, but in some ways it's like beyond politics. Yeah. And at at the at the core of it what has happened in like these pockets of Miami that you're talking about, David, it's a social transformation that has happened. Yep. Like the, 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 the conservatives in Miami have created the atmosphere socially where they are offering a completely different reality socially. And that's attractive for people, right? There's nothing and, and Tomas, I know you're an organizer. This is not like a, like meant to you know comment on on your work or whatnot. But like, there is nothing on the other side that comes anything close to approaching the level of social revolution, if you want to call it that, that the right has has done here in Miami. There's just nothing approaching that. I mean, it's a David. To your point, it's like a way of dressing. Right. It's a way of wearing your beard. It's like the the kind of tats you have right it, and they're 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 doing caravans all the time it's a sense of community it's like people gathering you know they're turning out to every meeting that they that they can and it's like a social event but it's also a political event I, what's what's the response to that on the left yeah like 
Yeah. Nothing. I mean, like, there is there is nobody currently capable or or um, you know possibly answering that social transformation that it has happened on the right, which I think in the long term is the biggest impediment for any Democrats trying to win back Miami-Dade County. It's like, well, something ha- needs to happen socially. I mean, like in in uh, in North Carolina, what, a decade ago or something, there was like a whole thing. They, they, they flipped the state to Democrat for a little bit. It's kind of Republican again now. Yeah. But what was at the core of that? The, the, it was like moral Mondays. The, yeah, I was going to say right? the, the Sunday meetings, but it, you're right. It was moral Mondays. I forgot. Yeah, It was moral Mondays. And those, what was that? That meetings. was like every every Monday we're coming to these places. Every Monday we're going to talk about this. Every Monday we're going to do this. We're going to become a group. We're going to become a movement. And that's going to be lo- linked up to your identity outside of politics and inside politics. I don't see that happening here. And that's what the what conservatives have been really really good at doing and i don't think that comes necessarily from one person it's a movement like this is a social movement that has happened so there you have it folks and we didn't even get into the actual real reason that miami has lost that uh the democratic party has lost uh hispanics it's uh because of latinx because of saying the word latinx that's the real reason that they i'm just kidding but uh i know and, and we're gonna have giancarlo Sopo. oh jesus christ yeah let me know when we have him on because i'll be glad to be on that episode uh i want to thank again our guest danny rivero you can find him on twitter check out his podcast danny thanks for joining us thanks for having me man That's all for this episode of Why Are We Like This? Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts for more episodes or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us at wawlt.com. Follow us on Twitter at Walt Show and on TikTok at Walt Show. You can also email us at walt at allpointswest.net. Until next time, this was Why Are We Like This? Walt Mafia Rising.